I'll start with a, a poor joke because um, by the end of the year I get fairly tired and the tired I get, the worse my jokes get. Um, so there's a teenage boy, right, and he's passed his driving test. He goes to Dad and he says, Dad, can I talk to you about using the car? Can I, can I start to use the family car? The Dad says, all right, son, I'll make you a deal. Bring your grades up from a C to a B, study your Bible more and get a haircut, and then we'll talk about using the car. So the boy thought about the offer and he, all right, yeah, I agree to those terms and conditions. I'm going to do it. So about six weeks later, the dad says, son, I've noticed that you, your grades have improved. Yep. And I've seen you studying the Bible. Yep. But I'm a bit disappointed that you haven't cut your hair yet. And the boy said, I've been thinking, dad, you know, when I was studying the Bible, there was a few characters in there that didn't cut their hair. Samson didn't cut his hair. Moses had long hair. Uh, even John the Baptist had long hair. In fact, I think there's overwhelming evidence to suggest that maybe even Jesus had long hair. And the dad replied, did you also notice that they walked everywhere they went? <laughs> Thanks, I'll be here till half past 11. <laughs> so we have been studying Romans 12. Uh, last week, Ben looked at Romans 12, verse 1 to 2. He reminded us that sacrifice is still required and that we can be transformed by the renewing of our minds and that we should not conform to the world. So this week we'll be looking at Romans 12, verse 3 to 5. And this says, By the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Let's just pray to begin with. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you uh, are here with us today and that you help open our hearts and minds and eyes to see and hear what you want us to see and hear and learn from this passage of Scripture. We pray you be with each and every one of us as we go out and understand this and go into our week ahead. In Jesus' name, Amen. So in Romans um, 12, verse 3 to 5, we learn from Paul about pursuing righteousness, uh, which is harmonious living, morally right and justifiable, and, and how this through faith, what it should look like. So when I read these three verses, it can be broken up into two main areas. The first one is the idea of humility, um, recognising who God is and what he's given you and looking at ourselves in sober judgement. In Philippians 2 verse 3 it says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility value others above yourself. And two is realising that we are each one part of a living body. In Ephesians 4.2 we're reminded to be completely humble and gentle be patient and to bear with one another with love. So let's look at the first part, uh, which is 12 verse 3. So do not think of yourself as more highly than you ought, but think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. So in order to do this, we must, which is seek righteousness, which is what's living that which is right and harmonious, we must live sacrificially through faith, which is what Romans 12 begins with. Paul promotes transformative principles and endorses attitudes, not rules, to follow. Living sacrificially 
means having humility and living to benefit others. Humility largely comes from the recognition that God is God and we are not. God has given us everything we have and to live sacrificially, we must realise that everything we are and everything we have to offer comes from God. So Romans 12.3 reminds us that each of us have been given a measure of faith and we are to use this faith to look at ourselves with sober judgment. See, sober judgment, if you're kind of wondering what that means, it means to stare into the mirror of reality. Uh, it's looking at ourselves from God's perspective, but also looking at others from this vantage point as well. See, Christ first, others second, me third. It's to align ourselves with the right mindset that we are under grace, not reward. See, God wants us to objectively see ourselves as people who need God and have always been under mercy and grace. We must remember that as we are under grace and that Jesus died for us, we ought to be humble and see that we never deserve it. So if we look at this with an objective mindset, we see that we are called into humble service within the body of Christ. It's thinking of ourselves in sober judgment in accordance to the faith that God has given each one of us. So the thing that Romans 12.3 teaches us is that by this grace given to us, think of yourself in sober judgment in accordance to the faith God's given you. Will you think of yourself full of faith and courage and inflate the promises that God has for you? Or will you let fear and worries deflate your life and your situations? When you look at yourself with sober judgment, it doesn't mean to put yourself down. You see, when we look at ourselves with sober judgment, we don't think higher of ourselves than we ought. But it's also not thinking lower of ourselves than we ought. It's about accepting ourselves and our humanness, our skills and abilities, alongside of our, of our full abilities and challenges. Low self-esteem is an inaccurate view of ourself. It's viewing ourselves as less valuable and ignoring our value and our contributions, while a cocky attitude is viewing ourselves as more valuable and inflating our achievements in order to be proud, putting ourselves above others. So both low self-esteem and cockiness are an inaccurate view of ourselves. Humility is knowing that in God, by the measure of faith that we've been given by God, that we are enough and that with him by our side, we can serve him and he will equip us for the service he wants us to do. Humility is knowing I can't do it by myself, but I do have valuable contributions to be made in partnership with others. We all need to work at humility with God our creator, to think of ourselves soberly in a balanced manner, to walk humbly before others, and that reminds us that everything we have and everything that we are comes from God. And this includes our abilities and gifts and the faith and the drive to use those abilities and gifts. James 1.7 reminds us that every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father. And in James 4.10 it reminds us to humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. I want to give you a couple of examples today of people in the Bible that we see humility in. One of the most classic, well-known examples is Jesus when he washed the feet of his disciples. That's a really humbling act. He was Jesus, he's the Messiah, and he came and he washed the dust off of his disciples' feet. It's a job that was, it's a lowly job, it's a job that was given to servants. Um, 
But he told them, unless I wash you, you have no part with me in John 13. And so that's the classic example of humility in the New Testament. And Jesus really set us an example here in terms of humility. But there are a couple of other, well, there's lots of examples in the Bible, but there's a couple of others I want to share with you today, um, which are perhaps lesser known. Um, so the first one is the dream of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4. Uh, so the book of Daniel is a real eye-opening book depicting how humility in the Bible is being taught to people of all different kinds. So Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon at the time. His leadership was good. However, he was known for being short-tempered and arrogant. And I think that's kind of a fairly common trait amongst people these days. So he's not that different from us. Now, though Nebuchadnezzar is described as someone who saw himself at the centre of everything, he wasn't a bad man. Uh, as, as Daniel acknowledged and wrote about him. See, Daniel was a Jewish scholar and he was an interpreter of dreams. He was competent, courageous and a humble man. Now, as the story goes, one day Nebuchadnezzar had a dream and it was no ordinary dream. The dream bothered him so much that he was desperate to know what it meant, what it was trying to tell him. So he called Daniel to come and interpret his dream. So with courage, Daniel revealed to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, that this was a call for him to be humbled by God. Daniel added that the man who was wrecked in the dreams was none other than King Nebuchadnezzar himself and that his kingdom would end. On the other hand, God will have his kingdom forever and no one can take that down. It was a warning and call for King Nebuchadnezzar to change his ways. Again, he wasn't bad, but he definitely had room for improvement in terms of humility. As a result of Daniel interpreting this dream for him, Nebuchadnezzar came to realisation and enlightenment. He was humbled and he was freed from his pride. He promised to glorify God. Daniel 4.37 tells us, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of Heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. So just like Nebuchadnezzar, we should remember that God pursues us by correcting us. The great characteristic of Nebuchadnezzar was his openness to being humbled by the Lord. And this is an area all of us can work on, humility in correction uh, from God in particular. Another lesser known story is that of Naaman in 2 Kings. So in 2 Kings 5 verse 1 to 19, there's a story of uh, humility about the power of admitting that you're willing to receive God's intervention. It started out with a man named Naaman. He was no ordinary man, for he was an important figure during King Amon's reign. And overall, he was very wealthy and very powerful. However, one day he became a leper. He was more than, leprosy then was more than just someone having a skin condition. It was signified, when you had leprosy, it was signified that you were filthy, you were unclean. Uh, There was a lot written in the Bible at the time about uh, lepers, um, but they were considered untouchable. Um, They were outcasts, rich or poor, they were sent away. They were forbidden to interact with other people um, to the point that when they walked down the street, they had to call out loudly, unclean, unclean, to make other people stay away from them. People were very fearful of them. So obviously Naaman, being this powerful, wealthy man, wanted to be healed as, as quickly as possible, if he could. His, this, this leprosy was taking away everything that he had, his power, his wealth, even his people. So desperate for help, one day a slave girl came to him and said, 
go and meet Elisha. Elisha was a well-known Hebrew prophet and he had a prestigious reputation of healing. So he went to meet Elisha and to his surprise, when he went to meet him, Elisha snubbed him and left him to talk to the servant. So the servant of um, Elisha told Naaman, go and bathe in the Jordan River seven times. And just like that, you'll be healed. However, Naaman was insulted. To him, he was suffering a disease and to be given such a simple, straightforward solution was a bit of an insult. Especially considering that didn't come from the prophet himself, but it came from his servant. But his own servant said, listen to him and do what he's told you. So finally, he had nothing to lose. He dipped himself in the river seven times. And after doing so, he was completely healed. And he vowed to serve the Lord forever. The thing is, it wasn't the Jordan River that healed him. It was the humility of receiving that help from a servant and humbling himself in order for God to be able to to do that and to heal him. Because of him humbling himself, he was able to witness the healing hand of God through the advice of a servant. And there's many examples of humility in the Bible, people being humbled and as a result of uh, of their humility being healed and used by God to influence other people. Paul continues on this thought on humility, which is seeing things as they actually are and its importance to a life of harmonious and righteous living through faith by discussing how as believers we come together to form a body. In Colossians 3.12 it says, Therefore as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. And in Proverbs 22.4 It says, true humility and fear of the Lord lead to riches, honour and a long life. Which bring us to the second part of Romans 12, the passage we're looking at. So Romans 12, 4 and 5. We are part of a living body. For just as each of us has one body with many members, these members do not all have the same function. So in Christ, we, though many, form one body and each member belongs to all the others. Let me tell you a story from the early 1800s. So in this time there was a king and his name was King Frederick William III of Prussia and he found himself in trouble. Wars had been expensive and in trying to build the nation he was seriously short of finances. He couldn't disappoint his people and to capitulate to the enemy was unthinkable. After careful reflection, he decided to ask all the women of Prussia to bring their jewellery of gold and silver to be melted down for the country. For each ornament that he received, he determined to exchange a decoration of bronze or iron as a symbol of his gratitude. Each decoration would be inscribed, I gave gold for iron, 1813. The response was overwhelming. Even more important, these women prized their gifts from the king more highly than their former jewellery of gold and silver. The reason, of course, was clear. The decorations were proof that they had sacrificed for their king. Indeed, it became unfashionable then to wear jewellery, and thus was established the Order of the Iron Cross. Members wore no ornaments except a cross of iron for all to see. And in the same way as Christians come to their king, they too exchanged the flourishes of their former life for a cross. 1 Peter 3 verse 3 to 4 tells us your beauty should not come from outward adornment such as elaborate hairstyles 
and the wearing of gold jewellery or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. As members of a living body, we need to understand our role to others within the body and the importance of our connections, interactions and support of each other to bring life to the body and to honour God. We're cautioned to see things as they are. It's our natural resolve to think of ourselves more highly than we ought, but God tells us, see yourself as you actually are, no more and no less. And this is important if we're to live a life of righteousness, because righteousness is all the parts of the body working for the good of the whole body. So if we say, I'm only a little toe, little toes are not important, therefore I won't do anything. I'll just, uh, you know, disappear. The body will be fine without a toe. Now, if you've ever stubbed your little toe, you'll realise just how important it really is. <laughs> Remember, Paul is teaching us that members may not all have the same function, but they're still important. So what I'm going to do is teach you some facts about important parts of your body that you may not think of important in the first instance. So valves, valves in your blood vessels help to push the blood up along the veins back towards the heart. When you stand or walk, if these weren't there, your legs would just pull with fluid and blood and then you wouldn't be able to walk. They would get, but, the, but the valves inside the tiny veins move that blood back up to the heart. If that's not happening, your limbs get heavy and tired and achy. Uh, your muscles, your muscles don't work on their own. For example, in childbirth, the uterine muscles are supported by hormones to make them work. When supported, the muscles of the uterus can exert a force of about 1 to 400 newtons with each contraction. That's a rough equivalent, um, if you translate it into kilograms, of about 40 kilos of force, which is a lot for an organ that weighs 1 kilo. Another important thing is the cilia hair-like projections on eukaryotic cells. Cilia are important throughout the body. They prevent blindness, chronic respiratory infections, deafness, diabetes, heart disease, infertility, kidney disease, and that's just a few. Now, I understand the value of tiny nostril and ear hairs firsthand. When I lost all my hair, my nose would drip constantly. I would get dust in my nose. I would hear a whoosh as I walked up a corridor because the little hairs wouldn't, wouldn't block that noise out. If I turned my head too quickly, you'd hear a whoosh. It, it was amazing. These... You know, most of us don't like our nostril and ear hairs. They seem to just grow endlessly and just get in the way. But they're important. They have a role to play in your body at keeping your body healthy. For example, in the, air, in the ear, these little cilia can have a variety of functions. One type of cilia helps you detect and hear sound. They capture sound signals and send them to your brain for processing, which is why cilia, cilia damage in the ear can lead to hearing loss. They also help to clear your ear of wax buildup. They move the wax out so that you can just clean it out at the end. If that didn't happen, your ears would get blocked full of wax. And finally, these little hairs can act as motion sensors, monitoring the fluid in the ear to help the brain maintain a sense of balance. The thing is, is that body systems are interconnected and dependent on one another to function. Your heart doesn't beat unless your brain and nervous system tell it to do so. How does your bladder help your skeletal system? Strange you asked. Your skeletal system relies on the nutrients it gains from your digestive system to build strong and healthy bones. It also relies on your urinary system to remove the waste produced by the bone cells. And in return, the bones of your skeleton help to protect your bladder by creating a structure that supports it. 
Enough about the body. I love to use these examples because I'm a health clinician, so it makes sense to me. Um, but the same goes for parts of a car. I wouldn't know one from another, but for people who know cars, they know how it all connects together in order to make it work. And if one of those pieces aren't there, it won't work. Uh, like, a, like a sport team. Uh, I don't do sport either, but like a sport team, you each have a role to play in that team. So if one of those people are not in that position, the other team can score goals or you don't play as well. In the same way, this is what God is teaching us through Paul in this passage. As the body is so interconnected, so too are we with each other. We cannot exist as an island. We're not designed to exist alone. We're designed to live in unity and community with one another. And Paul uses the analogy of a body to explain how each of us, though individually and uniquely gifted, can come together to form one cohesive unit. We have many members in the body and the members do not have the same function. The Christian life is not intended to be lived alone. It's intended to be lived harmoniously and to do this we must have the humility to understand what part of the body we are as well as being aware enough to appreciate and rely on other parts of the body. There's a passage in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12 to 27, unity and diversity in the body. And I love how that's titled in the Bible, unity and diversity. It shows how the differences when united create one body. I'll read that passage. Just as a body, though one has many parts, all its parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptised by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, we were given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body's not made up of one part, but many. Now, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. For if they were all one part, where would the body be? As there is many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, these parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think less honourable, we treat with special honour. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment, but God has put the body together, giving greater honour to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division within the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. For if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honoured, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. It's an interesting passage. It shows us that we are a living body of many parts and that each part is valuable and important. We cannot say, because you're this, you don't belong, or because you're like that, we don't need you. God put the body together, giving greater honour to the parts that lack it so that there will be no division within the body. And that is why the body has life. If one part suffers, we all suffer. Now, this passage of scripture can be a bit difficult to understand, but I want to show you a little video. It is designed for children, um, but it, when I watched it, it really made this passage come more alive and make more sense. Um, so I hope that 
we'll, we'll watch it. And hopefully it illustrates this passage a bit more to you. I don't want to detract from the passage, but I want to make it applicable and make more sense to you. A person's body is one thing, but it has many parts. Yeah, there are many parts to a body, but all those parts make only mm, one body. Christ is like that too, but we were all baptized into one body through one spirit, and we were all made to share in the one spirit. So like we said, a person's body has more than one part. It has many parts. The foot might say, I'm not a hand so I'm not part of the body. But saying this would not stop the foot from being part of the body. The ear might say, I am not an eye, so I am not part of the body. Saying this would not make the ear stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, the body would not be able to hear. You mean we couldn't hear music or funny jokes? Exactly. And if the whole body were an ear, the body would not be able to smell anything. Wait, wait, wait. You mean like cookies, flowers, nothing? You got it. Nothing. <gasps> if each part of the body were the same part, there would be nobody. God put the parts in the body as he wanted them. He made a place for each one of them. And so there are many parts, but only one body. I cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the foot, uh, hey mate, uh, I don't need you. No! Those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are really very, very important. God did not want our body to be divided. God wanted the different parts to care the same for each other. If one part of the body suffers, then all the other parts suffer with it. Or if one part of our body is honored, then all the other parts share its honor. All of you together are the body of Christ. Each one of you is a part of the body. might have added a bit more life to that passage of scripture <laughs> but what it does is it shows us that the gifts uh, through the gifts given to us we are able to be mutually dependent on one another we see Paul here compares the church to a human body and sets forward the symmetry and subservancy of the members to one another how although we are set in different places we have different gifts our gifts are all valuable and should be taken notice of and as members in one body the church and the body of Christ these gifts are all reliant on each other. It is necessary to learn to identify what our gifts are and use them to serve others regardless of whether the world honours that gift or not. Each person has a gift that they can use to serve someone else, but it takes faith to believe that such service to others is really important. And God has given us each a measure of faith, we read at the beginning of that in 12 verse 3, for us to exercise. It's a part of our logical service as a living sacrifice to exercise the faith we are given by employing the gifts we have received to serve others. Human bodies are human, they're alive. In the same way, the body of Christ is alive spiritually. Only that which is attached through God 
through Christ, has the life that God gives. Other bodies have movement and substance, but they don't have the spiritual divine life that the body of Christ has. Think about it. Pop-up kitchen, for example. There are many ways people in need can access food, many community groups and programs that can help distribute food. But what is it that makes people keep coming back here? What is it that gives us stories of lives being changed from people who pop in here to, to grab a bit of food? It's because they get something more here. They get the spiritual life that only Christ can give. And this is made possible by people who have humbled themselves to allow God to use their gifts to reach these people. This is the body of Christ. The body has many parts which come together to work. If you've ever had a part out of action, you'll see the effects and the stress it puts on the other parts. If you've broken your arm, the other arm works harder. You bend more, you struggle more, your fingers suffer in order to try and do the things that you normally do effortlessly. In the same way, if no one picked up food or dropped off food to the church, our kitchen helpers would have nothing to prepare. If no one talked to some of the people who dropped by, then they could sneak away unnoticed and we'd be a service just like any other with no connection. We need to not only come to faith in Jesus Christ, but come into being children of God through our faith and humble ourselves to allow God, our God-given gifts to be poured out through him. When this happens, when as a body of Christ we come together with all our parts, we can start to influence the people around us with God's love. Galatians 3, 25 to 26 tells us, Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. I think the essence of what this passage in Romans 12, 3 to 5 teaches us is that we need to acknowledge that what we have comes from God's grace and to look at ourselves accurately through the faith that he's given us. When we do this, we're able to understand our role in Christ as a member of his body and how, as a member, we belong to each other. May I encourage you to consider your attitude towards God. Practice humility towards God, the Father who created us, and understand your place in Christ, and to begin to understand your place in his body as a member of his church and your role as part of that body. God bless you.